Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So one of the things I love about my parents is how they travel. Like, you know them, and they're pretty unassuming, but they always end up in these wonderful little adventures. <laughs> like, when they were young and in Paris together, they were at dinner at some place where there was also this big band with strings. And the band started up, but no one was moving to the dance floor. And the band leader was kind of just begging people to join in. And then my dad swept up my mom, and they danced on this empty floor. And, of course, people joined in. <laughs> But when they got back to their table, the band leader brought them this fancy bottle of really smooth brandy and then joined them at the table. And they had this wonderful night together and kind of became friends. Wow, that's such a sweet story. (laughs) Yeah, but they kind of embrace people wherever they go. So they went to Cancun once. And instead of staying at a resort, they uh, they actually traveled down the Yucatan to see these pyramids that only archaeologists seem to go to. And I mean, it's because my mom's obsessed with ancient cultures, but... While they were there, they made friends with these fishermen who invited them to dinner at their house. So, of course, they went. Of course. And then they met their families, and they stayed late, and and they were still sending postcards back and forth from the U.S. when they came back. Wow. I mean, those are just like two of a thousand stories like that. And as kids, we'd meet all sorts of people from their travels. But, I mean, now that I have kids, I keep wondering, how do we make most of this world and of our travel? Like, How do we use it to understand cultures better and broaden our perspectives while, you know, having so much fun doing it? Yeah. And I think we actually have the perfect person on to give us a roadmap for that, the incredible Rick Steves. So let's dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And sitting behind the soundproof glass, ironing his safari suit, that's our (laughs) pal and producer, Tristan McNeil. It looks so straight, like I thought he was done with it, Mm -hmm. but it's never good enough for Tristan. He wants it (laughs) super crisp before he gets out there. For the lions. Now, Tristan is excited about our guest today, and that's because our guest today has helped so many Americans be smarter, more thoughtful travelers. 
He's the host of a popular travel series on public television and a weekly show on NPR. And he's here to talk to us about the release of the updated edition of his book, Travel as a Political Act. Rick Steves, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Nice to be with you. Now, Rick, I loved reading about you explaining that your most powerful travel experience was actually your very first one. You, you went to Norway with your parents. I think you were at the age of 14. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I had a lot of beautiful experiences on that trip, and I'm not sh- I think the one you're referring to is I was in the park in Oslo behind the palace, and uh, I remember my parents were just trying to make me happy and lavishing me with love and attention, and I was kind of a... At a, you know, as a typical 14-year-old kid being dragged on a family vacation. And I remember looking out in that park, and it was just speckled with families. And I saw all these parents loving their kids as much as my parents loved me. And it occurred to me, wow, this world is home to billions of equally precious children of God. And uh, that was sort of a jolt for me. It got me out of my ego and ethnocentric kind of uh, trap and it opened me up to just a, a passion for better understanding our world. Later on in that same trip, I was, um, this is 1969, and I was on the carpet at my Norwegian relative's uh, living room in Bergen, and we were watching uh, Neil Armstrong step on the moon, you know, one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. But I heard that in Norwegian, <laughs> and I saw the enthusiasm of all my Norwegian relatives, like just really, just ecstatic about this. And it occurred to me, this wasn't just an American accomplishment. This was a human accomplishment, and the whole planet was excited about this. And I thought, in the United States, uh, people were really into waving their flag, but uh, from a planetary point of view, it was just a huge, great thing for, for all of us. And uh, these were little moments that I had in, in my childhood that contributed to my outlook, and I've spent my career encouraging Americans to basically go beyond Orlando, to, to get out of their comfort zone and, and uh, broaden their perspectives through travel. And uh, I'm very excited about that whole value of travel. Yeah, it's funny. My, my mom talks about that same experience watching uh, the moon landing in India. And, and it is it was such a global phenomenon. Since 9-11, you've been traveling and giving this talk, Travel as a Political Act. Can you tell us what it means to travel as a political act? Yeah, I've been teaching like mad ever since I was a, a kid, uh, my love of travel. And I had, didn't have any grand plan, but I've been at this for decades now. And I, if I look back... It does have kind of a, a natural progression or evolution. Back in the 80s, it was for me all about budget travel, cheap tricks. Uh, I wrote a book called Europe Through the Back Door, and I was teaching people, you know, how to catch the train and pack light and get a hotel and a nice meal. And that's all important stuff, and that's the foundation. And I, I see that as kind of the, the lowest rung of, of uh, what you could think of as Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs if you remember Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Mm-hmm. And then in the 90s, I figured, well, we've cut the train and we know how to pack light and stay safe and healthy. Now let's teach about enjoying the history and the art for travelers. Uh, history and the art, the culture, that's really why we travel. And I wrote a book called Europe 101, and my, my passion was for teaching people to appreciate the culture. And uh, then after 9-11, I realized, you know, the pinnacle of this Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs is inspiring and encouraging and equipping Americans to get out of their comfort zone, to gain an empathy for the other 96% of humanity. And that's what I've been teaching a lot since then. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm going on a, on a road trip here in the next month where I'll be in 25 cities giving this talk about how we can travel as a political act. And, and that really means, uh, again, getting out of our comfort zone, uh, uh, going south of the border, gaining an empathy for the other 96% of humanity, and coming home with what I think is the most beautiful souvenir, that's a broader perspective. And uh, 
you know, a mindset where you're more inclined to build bridges and less inclined to build walls. All right, we have so many more questions for you, Rick, but before we get to those, let's take a quick break. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking to Rick Steves about the latest edition of his book, Travel as a Political Act. I like that uh, you admit in the book to having had tickets to India three years in a row, but pushing off the trip or you're worried about going to Egypt. And I I also love that line you use that uh, the people who would benefit the most from travel often stay home. But 
I, I'm curious, like, how do we push ourselves to embrace the uncomfortable and, and sort of make the trips to places we might not be as home with? Yeah, you know, I'm not at all advocating going to dangerous places. There have been writers that have had that as their publicity stunt, and they go to war-torn areas. I don't go to war-torn areas. I've never traveled anywhere where I think it's dangerous. In fact, just this week, I canceled out of a plan to go to Egypt. I just don't think it's quite right for me to go to Egypt and in, encourage Americans to go there because it's still struggling with a lot of issues that are important, and I think Americans might be uncomfortable there. Uh, but I've traveled a lot lately in countries like Iran and Cuba and Palestine and Russia and uh, Denmark and the Netherlands and Portugal and Morocco, and uh, I just love, um, you know, having experiences and taking notes and learning from my mistakes and and uh, helping other Americans go what I consider beyond Orlando. And I mentioned that earlier. And it really is kind of my mission is to get Americans out of their comfort zone and to realize the world's not a pyramid with us on top and everybody else trying to figure it out. There's smart people doing things different than us. This is not America bashing. This is just acknowledging that there's not the work ethic. You know, I, I was raised thinking we have the work ethic. It, it's a work ethic. My Norwegian relatives have a different work ethic. They don't have the work ethic. My Spanish, my Spanish friends have a Spanish work ethic. It's not as hard as ours, but it doesn't make it a better or a worse thing. They choose to work less and have more time with their families. That is a work ethic, and we have a work ethic. And when we travel with a, with a curiosity and an open mind, we challenge these norms that we think are, are given, and they're, they're really not. And that lets us make smarter decisions on how we want to run our lives and, and how we want to weave the fabric of our communities. Well, I, I do love how, how human this book is. And that's one of the reasons I like it so much is, you know, you're not sort of just talking to people and asking them to embrace everything you're saying. You're saying, like, your opinions will differ from mine because we draw from different experiences. And I, I really love the perspective you've you've uh, filled this book with. But I did want to ask you about this story of being in Turkey and observing a whirling dervish or a Sufi. You know, I, I, I thought the way oh, you yeah. described it was so beautiful. And, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and what it means to sort of have your, I think you call it cultural furniture rearranged. Yeah. Oh, well, as a tour guide, you can imagine. First of all, you mentioned how uh, I'm trying to be respectful of people with different life stories and different uh, viewpoints, and I've learned that just because as a tour guide, you've got the bully pulpit. You're holding the mic, and people are trapped on that bus, and it's really important if you if you want to have a challenging, stimulating, uh, transformational experience that you don't abuse the bully pulpit. So, you know, we all have to respect that nobody's got a lock on the truth here, and we're in this together, and we just have a chance to travel around and learn from fascinating and sometimes scary sort of uh, circumstances. Scary, not meaning dangerous, but just scary because kind of freaky. Uh, when I'm in Turkey, I love to uh, meet a dervish and introduce that dervish to my tour groups. And uh, I count in the book, I think it's even the lead-off story in Travel as a Political Act, how as a tour guide, I found this dervish. And I, I said, hi, I'm an American tour guide. I've got 20 Americans at the hotel, and, and we'd love to see you whirl, you know, these whirling dervishes. He said, I'm not a, a photo op, I'm a, I'm a monk, and uh, I'm praying. But if you want to watch me pray, I'm, I'm, I would welcome you to watch me, but you, I, need, I need to be able to explain to you what I'm doing. So I said, perfect, where and when? He said, on my rooftop at sundown. <laughs> so we gathered my group, and we went up to his rooftop, and he, walked, he came out dressed up in his dervish outfit, you know, and he welcomed us, and he said, uh, I'm, a, I'm a dervish. That's what you Americans would probably call a monk, and I follow, uh, my prophet is Mevlana. I think the Christian equivalent would be St. Francis, the prophet of love. Everybody can get their brains around uh, his teachings and so on. Uh, and uh, he said, five times a day, I, I, I spin myself into a meditative trance. 
and he showed us how he places one foot in the middle, and that symbolizes his home and his family, and then the other foot goes around and around on the outside, celebrating the diversity in God's great creation, and he spins with that motion. And one hand goes up to accept the love of his creator, and the other hand goes down like the spout on a tea kettle to shower God's love on his beautiful creation. And the dervish spins himself into a meditative trance and loses himself in that beautiful idea that he can be a conduit of God's love. And standing there as a tour guide and a travel teacher with 20 Americans who had no idea what a dervish was except as kind of like cruise ship entertainment, you know, and watching him lose himself in that beautiful idea and his head tilted over and his robe billowed out. And then for me to pan over to the left and see the faces of my tourists, uh, just wonderstruck. And to know that they were being changed right now, and they were going to go home with that beautiful souvenir, and that's a, a, an empathy for other people, a broader perspective. And then when they implement that broader perspective back here in this beautiful country of ours, they're making travel a political act. And uh, that's kind of what I think is the, the greatest um, accomplishment for a tour guide and a travel writer like me, is to help American travelers learn about the beauty and the diversity on this planet and go home and, and not be afraid of it, but to celebrate it. It's hard to imagine a more powerful experience than to have sat there and have, you know, a dervish explain what this was all about. That's, yeah. a, that's, that's such a wonderful story. Rick, I was hoping you could it's tell us beautiful. a little about um, your experience of being a Lutheran in Namibia, you know, like that the priorities there can be different and reading the Bible through different eyes there. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I'm a Lutheran and I think, uh, uh, it's fun to think that there's more Lutherans in Namibia than there are in the United States. And I've been on uh, trips with the Lutheran Church to help them uh, mission work and so on in Papua New Guinea and this and that. And uh, I, I think um, the uh, important thing for ethnocentric Christians to understand is there's, you know, there's different ways that cultures embrace different faiths. And uh, in my travels, I've, I've really enjoyed trying to be open-minded about that and, and learning from other people and, uh, it's just Lutherans have this funny notion that Lutherans are all Germans or Scandinavians. And, uh, <laughs> it's another example of the ethnocentricity, and we don't all have jello and green hymnals and this sort of thing, uh, and casseroles, as the Garrison Keeler jokes would be. Uh, and uh, that always is, is a, a powerful opportunity. And in our travels, we can, uh, we, we can uh, all you know, endeavor to better understand God without being judgmental of each, each other. I'll, I'll never forget as a Christian tour guide with a group in Turkey, uh, dancing in the living room of a mayor of a little village that had never met an American tour group before. And, uh, and I was the big shot because uh, I was the tour guide, and he was the big shot because he was the mayor. So he came over to me, and we're all snapping our fingers and shaking our shoulders and dancing. And he took me over to the most sacred place in his house. It was the, uh, the, his Quran bag, where he hangs his Quran on the wall. And uh, he said, uh, in my Quran bag, I keep a copy of the Bible, the Torah, and the Quran, because I believe us Christians, Jews, and Muslims are all children of the same God, people of the book. And I just thought, wow, I wish more Americans could, could meet this Muslim, and to realize that there's just so much, um, there's so much joy, and, and the challenge is for us to understand each other and respect each other and, and know how we can live together, uh, you know, as neighbors. And it uh, sounds almost trite, but that's sort of the fundamental thing about travel. We humanize this planet. And we come home not fearful, but we come home celebrating the diversity and the joy and the love that just abounds on this planet. And uh, uh, that's one thing I come home with from wherever I travel, is that just the, the love of a, of a father or a mother for their child, uh, 
perfectly the same here or Guatemala or Sri Lanka or Papua New Guinea or Norway or Morocco. I think it's really interesting in your guides to, to places like Amsterdam. You know, you choose to include, you know, sections on prostitution and marijuana, both of which are legal there. And I think it's, you know, a very interesting philosophy that you have around this. Can you talk about that philosophy on, on covering topics like these? I don't think everybody needs to be into the same things, but when you travel, you get exposed to issues, whether it's um, the importance of water in a thirsty uh, community, it doesn't, where women have to abandon their kids and walk for water every day, uh, whether it's the importance of uh, separation of mosque and state, like we have separation of church and state, or whether it's the importance, in the case of the Netherlands, compared to the United States, of not legislating morality. Uh, legislating morality, uh, that's a very important issue, and it's, uh, you know, we might learn about that in, in school, but to actually go to a place like the Netherlands and, and talk with people who say, you know, a society has to make a choice, tolerate alternative lifestyles or build more prisons. And you Americans lock up 10 times as many people per capita as we do here in the Netherlands. Either you are an inherently more criminal people or there's something screwy about your laws. Now, you can't dismiss that. We lock up 10 times as many people here in the United States as they do in Europe, most of Europe. And, uh, uh, and it is because we're really quick to legislate morality. And, uh, and we incarcerate people to solve our problems, whereas in Europe... They would rather have a, a system of uh, pragmatic harm reduction when it comes to prostitution. Nobody's going to say prostitution is a good thing, uh, but I think that you can look at this challenge in a pragmatic harm reduction kind of way and realize that, hey, it's going to happen one way or another, and uh, why don't we uh, legalize it and regulate it and let prostitutes have their union and uh, require that they get a medical checkup before they get their license so they're not passing diseases, and organize it in a way so when they have a dangerous client and they push their emergency button, they're not rescued by a pimp, but they're rescued by the local policeman. It doesn't work out quite that nice, but that's the, uh, that's the ideal, and that's what they're striving for in the Netherlands. It's quite impressive. Same thing with uh, drug problems. Uh, you know, in the United States, we've got this opioid uh, crisis. Well, they've had that crisis in Europe before. In fact, the, the two countries that have the most progressive laws about their drugs, hard and soft, are the Netherlands and Portugal. And both of those countries were responding a decade or two ago to an opioid crisis. And they decided to take the marijuana out of the equation and gain credibility for their law enforcement. And, and uh, in those countries, the word for addicted is enslaved. They don't see these people as criminals that need handcuffs and lawyers and cops. They are sick people that are enslaved to hard drug addiction. They need compassion and counseling and nurses. And uh, in those countries, they don't have the overdose deaths that we have. They don't have the incarceration rates that we have, and they don't consume more drugs than we do. They just deal with it in a smart, pragmatic, and compassionate way. So these are examples of ways that we can learn from our travels and make our country a better place. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to observe those differences. Now, one area where we might uh, all have certain things in common that I thought was very interesting is you know, you mentioned being impressed by the level of pride and perhaps even surprised at times at the, the national pride from place to place. Well, these are the fun things uh, that I've been able to put into Travel as a Political Act. And, and when my publisher was telling me we needed to reprint the second edition, I said, hold off, because there's been so many changes, I want to rework it for the new third edition. And as far as pride goes, we're dealing with this whole America first thing and tribalism and nativism and Brexit and and Erdogan, and there's all these changes in these, this turmoil in the political landscape, both in Europe and in the United States, and we can learn from that. I mean, we're looking at 
failed countries uh, in the Mediterranean basin that when they fall apart, you've got millions of refugees heading for Europe. Well, think of the failed nations. You've got Libya, you've got Syria, you've got Iraq. Those political borders were drawn by uh, European colonial interests a century ago. And now we have uh, an idea that, oh, they've got to be democratic. So we threw out their strong-arm leaders, their Saddam Husseins, their Qaddafis, their Assads, and so on. And what you get is a country that falls apart. It's a fake country. It can't be held together in a democratic way. We created the fake countries, and then a century later, we say you've got to have democratic rulers, and uh, the consequence is they fall apart, and then they, all these desperate people knock on the door of Europe. Uh, this is the consequences of Europe and American colonial interests not sensitive to local ethnic realities. There is this pride in these countries, but it is ethnic pride. And the European Union has, has uh, really respected ethnic pride. As a matter of fact, the European Union does not fund political units that were created after wars when line, lines were drawn, like today's Austria. The European Union funds ethnic realities. I've got a friend who is an archaeologist who renovates castles in the Tyrol, and if he wants money, he doesn't go to Vienna. He'll go home with nothing. He goes to Brussels. And when he goes to Brussels, he doesn't say, i got something great for Austria. He says, I've got a cool idea for the, the Tyrol. And Brussels gives him money because Brussels understands it is the ethnic regions that really are the, the truth. And today, the little languages in Europe are more widely spoken uh, now than they were a generation ago because Europe is embracing these sort of ethnic realities. I just love this idea that there's that national pride that uh, does not die away. And when it's respected, I think things go better. And this is an example of how when you travel, you come home with, with just a better, a more human, more real uh, understanding of the dynamics that are shaping the headlines that we're going to be reading uh, throughout the rest of our lives. Mm. Well, I, I also liked how some of that pride was also um, shown in things like an appreciation of cheese and how that changed your perspective on <laughs> how <laughs> cheese could be eaten. Uh, could, could you talk a little well, bit about that? <laughs> That's, that's a great example, you guys. And uh, I always use my experience as a tour guide and a travel writer in Europe as just sort of uh, the classroom for this. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, I was, cheese was no big deal. It was orange and the shape of the bread. You know, here you go, cheese sandwich. <laughs> uh, and uh, you go to Europe and, and these European these cheesemongers in Europe are evangelical about their cheese. Go into, like in France, you go into a cheese shop and, and uh, it's just a festival of mold and uh, uh, I'll never forget the story I talked about it in travel as a political act. The, uh, the cheesemonger saw me as this American cultural bumpkin, you know, and he goes, oh, monsieur, come over here. And he picks up a moldy wad of goat cheese, and he takes a deep whiff, and he goes, oh, smell this cheese. It smells like the feet of angels. <laughs> you know, it seems a little over the top. But, but, you know, even long before that, as a tour guide, when I was a kid doing, you know, vagabond minibus tours around here, I had a passion for exposing my Americans to stinky, expensive cheese. <laughs> you don't need to go home and have fancy taste in cheese, but it is good to know that a lot of people do, and you have that option. And um, to me, it's just humbling. I, I just love to shake up my ethnocentricity and my cultural self-assuredness and realize that there's more than one way to, to live our lives, and uh, we can really learn a lot. And it was just a joy for me to, to just kind of collect all of the most um, fascinating and, and uh, impactful experiences I've had in, in a lifetime of traveling uh, out of my comfort zone, hanging out with people who find different truths to be self-evident and God-given, and, and collect all those experiences in my Travel as a Political Act book. 
I give the talk, Travel as a Political Act, all over the United States. People can Google it and watch me give the talk if they want to. And I thought writing the book would just simply be giving the talk to the page, you know, and uh, writing up my talk. But it didn't turn out very well that way. But what I ended up doing was digging deeper and actually going back to the original experiences uh, in the field and writing them up. And it's not it's a guidebook in disguise. Uh, Travel as a political act is not designed so you can go to Cuba or go to Palestine or, or go to Denmark and have the same experience I had. It's just a reminder that we can we can connect with people and, and, and we can uh, you know, learn more about our country by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. And uh, the world's a fascinating classroom. And we have that option. You know, it's not that you, you shouldn't go to Mazatlan, but you do have the option to go to Managua instead of Mazatlan. And that would be uh, uh, an adventure that would broaden your viewpoint instead of your, your waistline. I love how you talk about hearing experiences from locals and seeing history in foreign lands through their eyes. Like, I, I think you got um, perspectives of a war-torn region over, I, I think it was a green walnut grappa, or uh, how you got to see someone uh, show you how they put on a headscarf and how, like, one tiny twist changes the meaning of it. But how do we get that sort of insight when we're traveling within the U.S.? Well, that's a good question. My focus is traveling outside of the U.S. I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people just don't have the uh, finances or the the interest in, in going far away for whatever reason. And uh, our country is, is uh, so multifaceted and, uh, and multicultural. And, you know, you can have these same sort of travel experiences within our own country. Uh, that's something I'd like to do more of. But... Uh, you know, there's there's just rich cultures, and for to me, I'm just so inspired by the fact that there are really important things to some cultures that are not important to other cultures. Uh, there are cultures that have baggage that other cultures don't have. There are cultures that have Nathan Hales that other cultures don't have. I was raised thinking, you know, Nathan Hale, Ethan Allen, Patrick Henry were like like amazing patriots. Well, they were great patriots, but they weren't unique and all over the world, you've got Nathan Hales doing their thing. Uh, you mentioned uh, getting close enough to a culture where you learn that just the twist of the headband on the scarf is going to change the whole uh, impression or meaning of how this woman's wearing that scarf. You know, I had the good fortune of going into a scarf shop in Istanbul, and scarves are, are very stylish for women. Uh, I, I'm interested how it's interesting to me how so many, a lot of Americans are just really put off by the fact that Muslims make their women wear scarves, you know. Well, Jewish women wear scarves after they're married, or they even wear wigs if they're an Orthodox Jewish family. To go out, they can't go out showing their own hair, I mean, in some families. And who am I to judge that? Uh, Christians, until recent times, also had women covering their hair. We're all on parallel evolutionary tracks. And, uh, you know, we've had the Reformation. We've had the Revolution. We've had Vatican II. Uh, You know, we've learned. We're affluent. Uh, We've benefited from uh, time. And, uh, and a winning economic uh, sort of system. Uh, other societies are, are behind us, perhaps, in their evolutionary track, but hopefully, uh, you know, people are going in the, in the same direction, and uh, we have to give everybody a little wiggle room. All right, well, we have time for a few more questions for Rick, but before we get to those, let's take a quick break. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together, It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. 
luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking to one of our favorite travel guides and travel writers, Rick Steves. Rick, I'm curious if there is a trip that stands out as one that maybe made you most nervous before you went on it and and where maybe you looked back and thought, you know, I'm so glad I went on the trip. What what was I so nervous about to begin with? Is is there one or a couple that stand out more than others? Hmm. You know, I'm... I've been fearful about a lot of places in my travels. I, for three times, I was planning on going to India when I was much younger, and every year I found an excuse not to go there because I was afraid <laughs> of the, the extreme poverty. And I finally got there, and and it was it really opened me up to the world. And India is my favorite country on the planet. And I realized there's a lot of squalor and a lot of desperation in India, but there's an odd way to measure joy in bulk terms, not in individuals, but in the bulk sense, a billion people on the Indian subcontinent, there's a lot of joy on that continent. And uh, it's even hard to, I, I hesitate even to talk about it, but India rearranges your cultural furniture better than any other place. It, it really humbles me. Um, before going to Egypt, I, I heard all these scare stories about how intense the beggars were, and it was so hot that tires were melting to the streets, and there's no maps anywhere just so they can keep you confused. And These were the stories that backpackers were hearing in Greece before flying to Egypt. And I finally flew there, and um, it was an amazing experience. I'm so glad I went there. I'll never forget walking across the wall from Jerusalem to to Bethlehem. First time I did it, it was scary, going into Palestine. 
And then after that, after spending a few days in Palestine, I, I realized you know, what's most scary about it is it's a poor country. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a tenfold difference in per capita income from Israel to Palestine. There's a lot of hard scrapple people, a lot of uh, soldiers in the streets keeping the peace and everything. And uh, but there was nothing dangerous about it. I just was afraid at first. I was afraid to go to Iran. We almost left our big professional TV camera in Athens and went in with our little sneak camera, thinking people would be throwing stones at an American film crew on the streets of Tehran. Got to Tehran. It was the I swear in Iran. It was the friendliest welcome I've ever received with my film crew as we're working. Uh, Tehran is a city of ten or fifteen million people, I think, and um, we're a lot of traffic jams and. Uh, I'll never forget we were stuck in one traffic jam, and it was just silent. And finally, the, the man in the next car asked my driver to roll down his window. He passed over a bouquet of flowers, and he said, uh, please give this to the foreigner in your backseat and apologize <laughs> for our traffic. Uh, I just thought, that never happens here in Seattle where I live, you know, in a, in a, traffic, uh, in a traffic jam. But Iran has that sort of um, warmth and, and, and beautiful person-to-person um, um, loveliness that you wouldn't know if you didn't travel there. And that's what I just love is that vivid image of, of actually going there, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's Guatemala or the Yucatan or Morocco or, or uh, Sri Lanka, there's so many great places we can go to. And with travel as a political act, I, I, I just collect my favorite experiences from a lifetime of travel like this in hopes of inspiring Americans to go beyond Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love it so much. But before we can let you go, uh, Rick, would you tell us where you're headed next or where you're excited to go next? Yeah, I'm uh, in a rut for the last 30 years. I've spent four months a year in Europe. Every year I spend uh, April and May in the Mediterranean. I go home in June and then I go back to north of the Alps for July and August. And I do this to update and write my guidebooks. We've got 50 Rick Steves guidebooks all over Europe. Uh, I've got to scout new TV shows. The biggest part of our business here, I work with 100 people in Seattle, is uh, my uh, tour program. We took about 20,000 people on 1,000 different tours this last year. So I work on the tour program and I take the tours. And then I spend a lot of time producing the TV shows. It takes six days to make one of our 30-minute episodes for public television. And we do about a dozen of those every two years. So that's what my work is. And then I've got new projects all the time. So I'll be filming in Sicily and Scotland this year. I'm also looking forward to doing a, a TV show, a one-hour primer on the fundamentals of global hunger and poverty, and I'm going to use Ethiopia and Guatemala as a classroom. So that'll be a new show we'll be offering through public television, I hope, in the next year. Wow. You're an incredibly busy guy, and we really appreciate your spending time with us. I hope all of our listeners will check out the latest edition of Travel as a Political Act, which I believe is out this week. But Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to talk to both of you, and, and happy travel. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.